So we are in chapter 8 of the story. Um, As you can see from that clip, we are in the story of Samson, among others. Um, Samson, this big, big hulk of a man. Um, But if you are with us for the first time or have been out for a while, we are in a series titled The Story, where we are going through um, the entirety of Scripture, or at least the entire story of Scripture, using, using selections of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it's giving us a big picture, what we're calling the upper story of God's story. This is the, the ongoing story that, that God is writing in the past and that God continues to write today in us. And we are experiencing our day-to-day lives, which is the lower story. These, these day-to-day experiences that we have, the individual struggles and heartaches and brokenness and, and the things that we go through, that becomes the lower story that we go through. Um, but by looking at God's full, complete story, we can see how He is at work through the generations and see what He is calling us to and what He longs for us. He longs to be in a relationship with us. He's pursuing us. He's making us into something. He is transforming us. And so if you don't yet have a copy of the story, please pick one of those up out in the foyer on your way out, and you can follow along with us in our reading. There's a reading schedule out there as well. Uh, But since we are now eight weeks into this, I want to spend just a few minutes in review, kind of going back through what we've done from the beginning, and and we're kind of incrementally putting up the posters along the walls here so you can kind of see the journey that we're on. But, But here's a short clip for us to watch as we see a review of the story. In the beginning, God created the universe, and within it, a planet called Earth. God's Spirit hovered over the dark and empty surface, speaking life into it. Light appeared. Sky and land split from the oceans. Trees and plants grew. Days and nights began. And all kinds of creatures filled the earth. Humans were formed in God's image to continue God's work. Things were really good. But soon, humans decided we want to live our way, not God's. In their struggle for control, selfishness and violence filled the world. So God started over with just Noah and his family. A few generations later, God made this covenant to a man named Abraham. The land around you as far as you can see is now yours. Your family will be as many as the stars and will be my blessing to the entire world. Years passed. Then miraculously, in their old age, Abraham and his wife had their only son, Isaac, just as God promised decades earlier. Later, Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau. Then Jacob had 12 sons. The youngest, Joseph, moved the family to Egypt, saving them from a famine. There, they grew into a large nation, a people called to be different, to remind everyone what it looks like to live in God's ways. Abraham's descendants, now called the people of Israel, were moved to Egypt by Joseph to save them from a famine. There they grew into a large nation. The Egyptians welcomed them at first, but soon this turned into fear and jealousy. The Israelites were forced to be slaves and do hard labor. But God heard their cries of pain. Through a humble leader named Moses and incredible signs and wonders, God led the Israelites in a great exodus back toward their promised land. As the Israelites journeyed through the desert, God guided them with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. The Israelites complained about being hungry and abandoned. 
So God sent birds and sweet flaky manna for them to eat and made fresh water pour from a rock. God even lived in the middle of their camp in a sacred tent called a tabernacle. Along their journey, God gave them special instructions called laws and commands guiding the Israelites to live differently, to show others how to follow God's ways. But the people complained. We don't want to live by these rules like slaves again. Living their own ways, the Israelites wandered the desert for 40 years. After decades of complaining and struggling in the desert, a new leader named Joshua charged the Israelites back into their homeland. Miraculously, God stopped the flow of the Jordan River so they could safely cross. God warned, drive out everyone who lives in the promised land or they will corrupt your lives. But the Israelites didn't listen, intermarrying and worshiping the false gods of the people who remain there. Soon, God's protection was removed and other nations overpowered Israel. In their defeat, they suffered, begging God for help. So God sent judges to lead them in battle, defending the promised land. In victory, the people worshiped God, but soon after, they turned from God and lived their own rebellious ways. This became a pattern from generation to generation. This was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. All right, so there you have it. The story, chapters 1 through 7, compressed into three and a half minutes. There's a lot in there, right? So why didn't we just jump to that, right? But we have been going through this and, and have gotten such rich detail. And, and hopefully God has been speaking to you in greater detail as you read through this, as you go through your small group experiences, as we share together that, that God is revealing something new and fresh to you. That most of these are stories that we have read as children. If you have grown up in the church or spent any amount of time in the church, you have probably gone through these stories before. Um, but hopefully this is not just review. This is something new. This is something that is life-changing for us. Last week, we spent uh, our time together going over the entire book of Joshua. And so we crammed in a lot there going through Joshua as, as the people finally get into the promised lands. They get there and they take Jericho and God is with them. He tells them, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. And as as we approach the walls in our lives, we hear these words of God, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. You get to that wall, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. And so this week we're going to cover all of the book of Judges. And so there's just a little bit going on there. Um, but if you would go ahead and if you've got the story, you can open up to chapter 8. If you've got your um, Bible, you can open up to Judges chapter 2 is actually where we'll be starting. Or you can flip there on your device as you sl slip across the, the different electronic pages there. So the Bible says that the nation of Israel followed God faithfully, followed God faithfully throughout the life of Joshua and the elders who succeeded him. So we've got these generations that have come before, and in the generation of Joshua, things are going well. But we get into Judges and we start to see the cycle start to form where they are no longer following the promises of Jesus, they're, or the promises of God. They're not following his instructions. They're not following his laws. And they slip into a generation of people who did not know God. 
And so picking up in verse 10 of chapter 2, after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, meaning they had all died, um, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So just stop right there and we can have an entire sermon right there. There was a generation that came along that did not follow God's commands to pass on their faith to their children. As we join together in family worship Sunday, we've got the kids in here with us, and, and we think about the faith journey that we have, the, the, the programs that we do as a church, the ministries that we have at church as, as a church, but even more importantly as parents, as we share our faith with the next generation. We have here an example of people who did not do that. And so this is incredibly convicting, especially for me, is, is how do I look at my children? How do I take this faith from one generation to the next? My parents successfully did that. My grandparents successfully did that. What is the experience that you have in your family? You may be first generation. You may be second generation. You may be a generation that you don't even know. Or maybe this is something that is completely new to you. And you are starting something different. You are changing a family tree with your faith. But how are we passing on our faith to the next generation? So there's one sermon. We'll set that aside and move on to verse 12. Because we start to see this cycle come about where there's disobedience and punishment and repentance and deliverance. And in verse 12 we see this. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. So we have here a generation who, who rejects the Lord. They take on their own way of living life. They take on the gods around them. Now, this is important because Joshua was commanded to go into the land and completely eliminate from the land any other faiths, any other people. And so we see here that did not happen. They got to a point of comfort. They got to a point where it was okay and allowed everything else to exist around them. And now left long enough with those influences on them, they are now in a situation where they no longer have the faith of their fathers and of their grandfathers because they allowed the influences of the world around them to come in and, and intermingle with them and become a part of them. Now they have rejected the Lord and they are worshiping other gods. Verse 16 gives us really an a entire summary of the book of Judges. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with, he was with the judge. God was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. 
But when the, when the judge died, the people turned, on, turned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so we hear, see here this pattern that starts to form that goes over and over and over through the book of Judges. First, we have disobedience. The people get to a place where they forget the faith of their fathers. They forget what God has called them to do. They, they forget what God has called them into. They forget the rules. They forget the laws. They forget the lifestyle. And with that comes punishment. A foreign people come in and, and punish them in some way. They persecute them. They attack them. And then there is a cycle of, rep of repentance. They get to the point where we've had enough, we can't handle it anymore. God, we're sorry, we're going to go back to your ways. And so then from the cycle of repentance, God comes in and brings them a judge, and there is deliverance. And then the judge dies, and we circle back around to the beginning. Disobedience. This this cycle happens, and we, we see throughout the entire book of Judges, a dozen of these judges come up over a course of 400 years, 11 men and one woman. And so when you think about a judge, we have to get past the, the modern image of what we think of as a judge. So hopefully most of us have not spent a lot of time in front of a judge. Um, we, we have not faced that. Uh, some of you may have spent more time there than others. Um, but we see a judge as someone who sits on a high place in a room. They have certain robes and maybe a wig and a gavel. And there's this image that a judge is someone who takes the law, hears, and objectively makes a decision about the guilt or innocence of the person that stands in front of them. So we've got this modern-day judge. They've, they play a very specific role in in the justice system. But we've got to get past that and think about what the Old Testament judge was because this, this judge was a little bit different. This is a judge who had political power, a judge who had spiritual authority over the people. They spoke for God, and they were also military leaders. So these judges would take the Israelite people and they would keep the peace like, like we would think of as a judge, but they would serve these other functions as well to provide spiritual direction, to be a spokesperson for God. But then this was also the general of the army. This is someone who had great power. And so there's several judges that, were, that are in this chapter, but we're going to focus on three. The first one is Deborah. Deborah, a woman. She's a woman of influence. And so we look at the book of Judges and we've got a woman here serving this role, which is, is a role that is, is not common for her day. A role where she is taking leadership over the people, where she is in a position of authority, where there is a political responsibility, there is a spiritual responsibility, there's a military responsibility. This is one tough lady. And so Deborah is in this role because God has called her into this role. And she takes on this great influence. There's a um, story of George and Barbara Bush, which I'm quite certain is a fake story, uh, but it's a fun story nonetheless, so we'll pretend like it's a real story. Um, 
George and Bar- Barbara Bush are in a motorcade, and um, they, they have to stop for gas. And so, you know, everybody has to have gas in their vehicles, right? So, so they stop at this gas station, and they're fueling up. And, of course, the crowd, what crowd there is at the gas station, sees this. And, 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 and George and Barbara get out and shake some hands. And, and she gets into this conversation with the gas attendants. And they really, they're really chatting it up. It's obvious they know each other. And so they're, they're, they're having this conversation, and they, they give each other a hug, get back into the motorcade, and, and go off. And, and George is like, Barbara, who is this? Who, who is this person that you have been chatting with? And he, she says, that is my ex-boyfriend from high school. So we, we, had, we had a pretty serious relationship, talked about marriage even. Well, they're, they're driving along, and, and George starts to get a little puffed up, and... Um, a little, a little cocky and says, hey, so, so if you would have married him, you would have married a, a gas attendant. And oh, no, George, no, George. If I would have married him, he would have been president. <laughs> and so we see the influence of women in our lives, right? Don't Google that story because you will find that it's not at all true. It's been told of many others, but it's fun to think about. And, and we know that that. The women that support the men in in public places are just as much as important as the men that are in those roles. The women hold such incredible influence, and we see that so much so here in Deborah, that, that she is a woman of influence. So never underestimate the power of a woman, right? Right, we've got amens down here. Preach, yes. Careful, no. All right, so Judges 4, chapter 1, moving on before we get into any more trouble. All right, all right, so again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we see this cycle again that starts off with them doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's disobedience. Now, now the Ehud was dead. So the previous judge had died, so we get back into this cycle. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in these places um, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites with, for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. So we see this cycle. They've now being punished, and now we get them into repentance. They're crying for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, which means she speaks for God, the wife of this other guy, was leading Israel at that time. And so Deborah has this close walk to God. She's not just someone who is, is listening to legal cases. She is a prophet of the Lord. She speaks on God's behalf. And so she comes to her military commander, and she talks to this military commander in Judges 4.14. Then Deborah said to Barak, her military commander, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And so Deborah continues this conversation with her military leader. He's the commander. She, she is clearly in charge, though. And she tells him in the course of their conversation that a woman will be the hero of the battle. You see, the military leader, Barak, was fearful. He was afraid of what was out to get him. And Deborah had to come in and say, no, go. 
And because you were hesitant to go, a woman is going to be the hero of this battle. And of course, we assume that this woman is going to be Deborah. Judges 4.17. Sisera, meanwhile, remember this is the enemy, he's fled because the army is coming in. He fled on foot to the, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. Because there was an alliance between the two kings. So here's a safe place that we can go into. He's on the run. He sees this person that they're in alliance with. I can go into this tent and I can hide out here. And so he goes to the tent and Jael gives him a place to stay. She says, come on in. Hide in the tent. I'll cover you up. I'll give you something to drink. This will be a safe place for you. And then he dozes off. And so she picks up a tent peg and a hammer. Quite the hospitality going on here, right? <laughs> so while you're asleep, I'm going to just kind of take a hammer and a tent peg and we'll censor the rest of it. Um, but there's kind of a picture of the lady there. You can't see her real well. She's holding up this mallet in this tent peg. And so, needless to say, the guy does not survive his nap. And so... Barak comes in in pursuit, and Jael says, I know where he's at. He's in my tents. He's dead. I killed him. And so Barak goes in, and now Deborah's prophecy is fulfilled. A woman is the hero of the story, but it's not Deborah. It's this unlikely housewife who takes a tent peg and a hammer. And so Jael is the, the woman of the day. So I'm sure her husband um, kind of took naps when she wasn't around. <laughs> Deborah was respected by the people. She, she spoke the truth because of the fear and reluctance of the men. A woman came in and was the hero of the story. God uses the unlikely characters. And we see this story repeated over and over and over where there is an unlikely character and God chooses to use that person. We have a military leader that should have been the hero of the story. We have Deborah who should have been the hero of the story. But the hero of the story ends up being this lady and this plan that she ends up having. The next unlikely candidate that we're going to talk about is Gideon. Gideon is a great story. There, for seven years, the people of Israel had been struggling under a period of oppression from the Midianites. So now we see back in this cycle, the previous judge dies, there's disobedience, they're now being punished by the Midianites. And enters in the story of Gideon. Judges chapter 6, verse 11, page 108 in the story. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that, that belonged to Joash. The, the Old Testament's rough with these names. All right, where, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Okay, so Gideon is in a wine press not doing the wine thing. Okay? He, he is taking his wheat, and he is hiding in this wine press, which is not the place where you're supposed to thresh wheat, and that's where he's working. And so Gideon is in hiding, trying to make sure that he can, he can get through this wheat and get it processed and get it ready without the Midianites coming in and taking their share. 
Because we've got this gang of thugs that wants to take their part and they just come in and they raid and they take the good stuff and leave the bad stuff. And so Gideon is trying to avoid that. And so God is going to move Gideon from this place of fear, this place of hiding, to a place of trust. In verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, here is this farmer in a wine press, completely out of place. Mighty warrior. The Lord is with you. You're a mighty warrior. Well, this is not exactly who Gideon is. This is a stretch. But God is inspiring him to be something more. God is using these words. He is giving him a new title, a new label, a new name that's saying, you are a mighty warrior. And so God gives us these names. He gives us these even before we walk out in those. We talked last week about how how we can speak things, that we can speak the promises of God because we know that they're promises for us. And so we can step out in faith knowing that God has given us a certain title. The New Testament tells us that we are heirs to his throne. We are princes and princesses. We are our sons and daughters of God. These are titles that are given to us whether or not we walk out confidently in those titles or not. He gives us those. And he's saying, Gideon, you are a mighty warrior. And Gideon is in the wine press going, huh? Okay. And he says in verse, th- verse 13, Pardon me, my Lord, pardon me, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that, your an- that our ancestors told us about? Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? So he remembers the stories. Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. We see that cycle again. And so he's discouraged. He feels inadequate. He feels like he's not the right guy. Does this sound familiar? We hear the story of Moses in this, where where Gideon is called to something, and he says, really? I'm in this small tribe. I'm I'm, I'm like the runt of the group. And, And you're calling me into this? I'm not qualified for this. The Lord answered, I will be with you. I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So God says, you don't think you can do it. You don't think you're the right person. You're not the right size. You're not from the right family. You don't have the right experience. You don't have the right education. But I am with you, and that is all that you need. God gives him a test. And we don't read this part in the story, but it's in Judges where his first test is to go tear down the altars in his dad's front yard. And he goes in under the disguise of night and, and tears down these altars and these places of idol worship. And, and the next morning people find out that this has happened and they're a little upset. And they chase after him and he says, well, or the dad steps in and says, hey, if the idols are real, if, if Baal is, is, is a real God, then let him defend himself. Don't chase after my boy who tore it down. And so he goes through that first test, and then there's the second test. This spot where, where Gideon calls the people of God and rallies the troops to go into battle against the Midianites. 
And he, he makes the call to the tribes of Israel to, to enter into this battle, and he gets 32,000 men, which sounds great. 32,000 men, that's a pretty good-sized army, except for the fact that the Midianites have 135,000. And so we've got this good-sized 32,000 group up against this 135,000 group. And God says, oh, you have too many. What? What? That you, you have too many people. No, there's, there's 135,000 of them. I need more. But God says, no, you have too many people. Tell the people that if they are fearful, if they don't want to do this, then let them go home. And so, so Gideon tells the people, you can go home if you don't want to fight this battle. And so 22,000 of them get up and leave. They're like, we're done with this. We've seen the Midianite army. We're done. And so he's left with 10,000 not very smart people, I think. And, and they're, they're left here. They're, they're, they're either just dumb or very courageous. And they come to this point, and God says, there's still too many of you. And so go down to the river and, and, and watch how they drink. Watch how they interact. And so the ones who just dive in and, and drink face down into the water, unaware of the things that are around, send them home. But the ones who stay on guard, the ones who are keeping an eye out because they're, they're drinking out of their hands, those are the ones that we're going to keep. And so they whittled it down to this massive army of 300. And so they've got 300. There is one to every 450 Midianites. The odds are not good. And this is God's plan. And now, we, now, now they're ready for battle. Judges 7, 19-21, page 111. Gideon and the hundred men with him, so there's 300 of them, God tells them to break them up into three groups, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding it in their right hands, the tr- uh, and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, "A sword for the Lord and for Gideon!" While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And so here we go into battle, and here are the weapons you're supposed to take with you. You're supposed to take a torch with a jar on it and a trumpet. These are your weapons for battle. There's 300 of you going up against all these thugs, against this great military force, and these are the weapons that you have to take. And so they, they faithfully go through, and they break these jars, and now the torches are around the Midianites, and 300 lights show up. And then they blow their 300 trumpets, and everybody freaks out. And so the Midianites, they just are in complete chaos, thinking that they are surrounded, and they just kill off each other. And so they, in the chaos, kill off each other, and then they, what is left, flee, and Gideon and his 300 pursue him. 
And so now Israel enjoys another time of peace. 450 to 1, and they won. It can only be by God's power that this battle is won. God puts us into situations. We find ourselves into situations. We screw up and get into situations. And and the battle is the Lord's. He says, I am going to be able to get all the credit for this. Because 300 yahoos with a torch and a trumpet can't get anything done. And he says, I will make this happen. I will fight this battle. Too often we tell ourselves, I can never. I can never be used by God. I can never break out of that cycle of addiction. I can never get out of debt. I can never turn my marriage around. I can never share my faith. I can never deal with this. I can never. And the story that God gives us says he can. That whatever your never is, he will, he can. And so what are you afraid of? What is it that is holding you back? What are the things that are like the odds of 450 to 1? If God is with you, then you have nothing to fear. God made Gideon continue to whittle down that army and got to a point where it was just absolutely ridiculous, where only God could get the credit of the victory of that battle. The very first command tells us to have no other gods before him. And we surrender. We know that he is the one that is in control. And it's not by power. It's not by our might. It is by God that victory happens. The third character we've got is Samson, a man of vindication. God can do mighty things through just one person. He's strong, he is courageous, he is bold, he's this man's man, he's intimidating. And he's raised a Nazarite, which means no alcohol, no unclean food, and no haircuts. And we know that he doesn't get a haircut, I'm not sure about the others, because he lives a pretty wild life. And he wanted to marry a Philistine woman, someone who did not believe in God, and against his parents' wishes, he went into that relationship and, and one bad, bad relationship after another. But he was still fighting for God and he's still listed as one of the judges, which means he has this spiritual authority. He has this military authority. He has responsibility, but he's quite the character. He took on the enemy of God and he killed a thousand Philistines with just one jawbone of a donkey. But as strong as he was, the greatest weakness he had was the pagan women that were around. A wife, Delilah, gradually, over time, gets to the secret of his strength. And so we read the story of of Samson, and we see how he reveals this after three tests. I think you would have caught on and think, what's going on? You're just a dumb guy. Yes, he's a dumb guy. And so we think, how can he be so dumb? But then I look at the mistakes of my past, and I look at the the mistakes of my friends, and look at the brokenness of the world around us and say, yes, how dumb. Because when we turn our eyes off of God and what he wants, it's 
easy to make stupid decisions. When you shift that focus off of the Lord, we can make some pretty dumb mistakes. And so I want to give Samson a little bit less of of the, the bad rap that he gets because he's just a dumb guy. And that's true of all of us. Delilah assists in the, the, ca- the capture of Samson and, and cuts his hair. His eyes are gouged out. He's gone from the Hulk to just a laughingstock. He is the court entertainments. In Judges 16, verse 27, Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them. His right hand on the one and the left hand on the other, Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all of his might. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people. And thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. All throughout the book of of Judges, we see the people in the cycle. And we see even characters like Samson in this cycle of, of disobedience, of punishment, of repentance, of deliverance. And each of these cycles that we get through begin with, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so today I ask, where are you at in this cycle? I think we find ourselves in this cycle at some level, routinely throughout our faith where we we find a place in our life where we we realize that there there is disobedience in what we're doing that we know that we're not doing what god has called us to do and 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 maybe we we get ourselves into some sort of punishment we feel the consequences of our bad choices and then we find ourselves in a place of repentance a place of brokenness where we say, God, I cannot do this on my own anymore. You are God, and I'm not. And we find ourselves into that place of repentance, and it is when we are in that place of repentance that God can deliver us from that. And so we see that cycle. This is not a one-time cycle. A one-time cycle where where we, we mess up and then we repent and then life is good. We find ourselves continually in this, this refined process. Now, thankfully, we live in a time where we are after the cross. And we receive grace for each of those boneheaded things that we do. That each time we get through those cycles, the blood of Jesus pays, pays the consequence for that. He jumps into that cycle and pays the punishment for us. Pays the punishment for us. But we have to be in a place where we are willing to change. Earl Nightingale said this, You will remain the same until the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the pain of change. We're going to stay the same 
until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing because we don't like to change. And so maybe you've been in a cycle of bad choices. God can still work through that. Maybe you are in a season where, of repentance or maybe you are experiencing the fruit of deliverance. But just like Samson, he is writing that story until the very end. He's writing that story for us. You, may not, you might not be able to see it. You might not have the strength. You might not have the courage. You might not have the way out. You may not have what it takes. But God does. He gives us this gift. He gives us deliverance. Let's be standing together. We're going to spend some time together in prayer. We're going to have shepherds and um, shepherding couples down front and in the back and available to pray with you. Where are you at in this? You know, many of us get to celebrate that we are in a great season of, of deliverance. Um, but maybe there's something that's nagging at you. Maybe something little, something big. This area where you need something. You need help from God because you cannot do it on your own. And it's time to surrender to him. It's time to submit to him. It's time to get on your knees and, and, and repent of those things. But however we can pray for you, however you would like to respond, we'd love to, to visit with you down front as we sing and pray together.